Are you ready to be transported back to 1800s high society London? Because season three of Bridgerton is now playing only on Netflix. This season follows the story of the Tons resident wallflower, Penelope Featherington, as she undergoes a journey of self-discovery and empowerment where we see her truly blossom. Penn's emotional transformation takes centre stage as her friendship with the charming Colin Bridgerton evolves into something more. For those not yet acquainted, Colin, the charming younger brother of the Bridgerton family, is about to turn Penelope's world upside down. Mm, This is the ultimate good friends to lovers story. From those initial butterflies to when both parties realise there might be something more between them, watch Bridgerton Season 3, now playing only on Netflix. Yeah, I mean, I guess I felt pressure to prove that it was all worth it. But that was more, I mean, I felt that pressure internally. I felt like, fuck, this better be worth it. You know, I've just lost, I've lost my best friend, who is my ex-girlfriend. Oh, I still get up there talking about it. You know, I'd hurt someone that I love so much for someone else that I loved. And I never thought that, you know, up until that moment, had you told me that you could love two people at once, I would have told you that you're full of shit and pick one. But I really did love two people at once. Hello and welcome to this In Conversation episode of Shameless, the pop culture podcast for smart women who love dumb stuff. If you don't know Tully Smythe by name, we bet you know her story. Rising to fast fame on Big Brother, Smythe found herself the centre of one of the original international and viral storms after entering into a relationship with a fellow contestant on the show while having a girlfriend on the outside. Some six years later, Tully Smythe has proved to be far more than her Big Brother story. She is now an influencer, a content creator, and a vocal advocate for mental health and people suffering from early-onset Alzheimer's. Tully knows how to tell a story, and we cannot wait for you to hear the one she has to tell today. Here's Tully. Tully Smythe, welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. We have had so many requests to get you on from different listeners. Every time we ask everyone, who do you want to be on our In Conversation series, your name comes up every single time that's very flattering I'm just flattered that people still know who I am like six (laughs) years down the track we start every interview with the same question what is it that you've been reading watching or listening to recently that you'd recommend okay so you guys sent this through to me yesterday um which is great because I like to be prepared um I'm a type personality so I need to have all my ducks in a row where I just panic so I have been reading I have it here with me it's a very interesting book. It's one of those books where I'm a little bit apprehensive to take out in public. Um, I go to Paran Pool a lot and um, I'm, I haven't taken it to Paran Pool. I take a different one because just even just the front page, I just think screams like sad single white female. So it's called Attached um, and the blurb says, the new science of adult attachment and how it can help you find and keep love. Now that makes it sound a little bit like self-helpy um and sad desperado um which i I mean let's be honest i am a bit of a desperado Mm. but it's super super interesting so basically it talks about adult attachment theory i don't know if you guys know anything about that but basically all of us can be pushed into sort of three categories generalized categories um anxious avoidant and secure Oh, anxious. Hello, me. <laughs> I I am textbook. Like, I didn't even have to read the blurb. I was like, yeah, I know what I am. Like, it's very <laughs> obvious. Um, so basically the book goes through and it sort of helps you figure out your attachment theory. It helps you figure out your partners or someone you've been wanting to date's attachment theory and talks you through sort of 
which um, attachments work best with each other and helps you kind of figure out how you relate to other people, how you are. I'm just finding it like mind-blowingly accurate and and super interesting when I think back to my past relationships. I kind of mm-hmm. wish that I'd read this like 10 years ago. Um, so, yeah, I've been reading that at the moment, which is really interesting. Am I right to say that you are a classic romantic? Oh, my God. It's like – it's – yeah. Yeah. I have like three love hearts tattooed on me. Like it's in, <laughs> it's embarrassing. So take us back to the start then. You've just touched on your relationships, but take us much earlier than that. What was your childhood like? What was everything like before we knew who you were? Well, I think – I mean, that's probably, again, plays a lot into – I mean, it, we all come from somewhere and, you know, it's that sort of thing where like we're all – fucked up thanks to our parents but <laughs> it's you know I don't think it's it's a secret that my mum is quite ill um she has early onset Alzheimer's and that kind of all blew up when I was about 15 years old but if you speak to my dad there were signs of it way before then so I remember it hitting then and, and affecting me from 15 but I mean now you know with the beauty and the inside of hindsight it probably was affecting me before then it was definitely affecting her before then so I figured, like, I basically lost my mum, you know, at 15, um, which is so tough. You know, that's such a huge, a really important age, as you would both know, being females. But then losing your mum at any age is horrific. Mm-hmm. Losing your mum, you know, during puberty <laughs> was a nightmare. Like I had, I didn't know, and I've got two brothers um, and my dad who, bless him, is, a, you know, an absolute saint, but not exactly the best uh, go-to when you need your mum, you know, at 15. So I definitely think that me being an anxious uh, person comes definitely stems from some of that and um, looking for the kind of love that I've always looked for I definitely also think uh, is a result of my of my upbringing, my childhood. So when you were 15 and that all sort of came to a head and you realised that your future with your family was going to look very differently to perhaps what you would hope, how did that manifest and how did you sort of navigate that as a 15-year-old? Did you rebel, like a classic stereotype? No, you know, I was always a good kid. Um, I think what I did at first especially was just pretend it wasn't happening. Um, that was way easier than dealing with it. Um, well, also firstly we didn't know, for a long time we didn't know what was wrong with mum. Um, we went through everything from brain tumors to sleep apnea. Cause at first it's little things like forgetting where the car was at the, at the, at the supermarket and, um, mood, mood changes. Like she went from being quite, um, bubbly and warm and loving to kind of angry and defensive and snappy. Um, so for a while it kind of just seemed like an adult problem. Like dad was dealing with it. Um, you know, we weren't going to the doctor's appointments. We weren't sort of privy. Dad was, was very, very rarely stern on keeping us protected from it all. So we didn't really know what was happening. I just knew that mum was kind of turning into a bit of a bitch um, all of a sudden. And I um, was copying it a lot. I don't know if it's because I was the eldest or I was the only female in the house. Um, You know, having chats with dad now later in life, he has some theories that maybe she was, you know, she knew she was losing her mind or she must have and kind of saw – herself in me and was a bit jealous maybe or you know was just lashing out at me because she kind of saw herself in me mm-hmm. and I was sort of getting older and she was sort of losing herself there are lots of theories um but I initially just pretend it wasn't happening you know I loved going to school and pretending that you know leaving the clusterfuck that was happening at home, getting on the school bus, and it was just all behind me. Um, so initially I didn't deal with it at all. I wouldn't have friends over because she was getting loopier and loopier and I just didn't want to have to explain her behaviour or deal with them being like, what the fuck's wrong with your mum? 
So initially I ignored it and then it wasn't until uni, first year uni, when she was pretty she was pretty bad at home, um, you know, double incontinent, which is, you know, pretty confronting, um, that I kind of couldn't really ignore it anymore. It was affecting me a lot um, and I had a sort of my first long serious partner who would come home with me and was therefore privy to what was going on. You know, I remember um, being asleep in the middle of the night and my bedroom window, we had, I had like a little sort of balcony courtyard area and then I had my bedroom window and then my parents was opposite the courtyard. So it was kind of like, mm-hmm. yeah, and every night mum would wake up in sort of a psychosis state where she'd just be repeating the same word over and over again, which was horrible. I'll kind of forget it. And so in the middle of the night I'd wake up and I'd just hear someone screaming, you know, horrible, 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 like over and over and over and over again for hours um and at that point my partner would would just lean across and um, put her hands over my ears so like that kind of I couldn't really ignore it at that point um but I definitely think it's funny you know I um I, I dated a lot of of females throughout um uni and now looking back I'm wondering if that's because I was searching for sort of a maternal love that I wasn't getting you know, at home or I wasn't, I didn't get growing up because I, I'm trying to, you know, I try and figure out now why I ended up dating females and why now I don't date females. And yeah, that's one of the theories is that I was looking for that kind of maternal love um, that I just wasn't getting anywhere that's else. so interesting. Well, I can't figure it out. I don't know what, and it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. And, and, you know, the kind of person that I am, I, when I came out of Big Brother and I wasn't dating girls anymore, I wanted to figure out what happened and why I was interested in... Is it that you literally don't feel a sexual attraction to women? At all. Really? Literally came out of that Big Brother house and that was it. Wow. Yeah. So I have wanted to figure out why and that's one of my theories. But yeah, I have no idea. I think there are, because you have been on Big Brother, like you just said, there are probably misconceptions about you out there. I feel like... So many. Yeah. You were in the house for 10 weeks. Mm -hmm. And for 10 weeks to define 30 plus years of life is pretty confronting. How do you describe yourself? What are the the adjectives or the words that you would use to... My sexuality or just me as a person? You as a person. I mean, that's tricky because I went in there one... I went in there as someone and I came out as someone else. That's... I mean, I think we all did to an extent, but me especially. I literally came out and had done a 180. Um, you know, I, I think I oh, – that's such a hard question because this my actions and the consequences for those actions have changed me irrevocably. Um, and I don't know if it's it, – obviously there are some positives to it. I'm stronger and I'm, um, you know, I'm more confident in myself. And um, I think there's something really liberating about hitting rock bottom – there's nowhere else but up like you know I you don't you don't care about what anyone thinks anymore because you're like you know what the whole country is seeing me at my worst they all think I'm this that and the other fuck it like what's the point in pretending or or trying to impress anyone anymore it's like this is who I am what's and all fucking take it or leave it don't give a fuck anymore um but I definitely think the show and and the subsequent uh the years after have changed me in a negative way also in Um, what way I'm a lot harder. I'm a, I'm, I'm a harder person. Um, I'm, I, I have this chip on my shoulder that doesn't want to go away. I used to kind of be this, um, you know, soft, like romantic, um, you know, all you need is love and everything's going to be fine and we'll just – and now I'm kind of like – I'm prickly, you know. I, I, 
I assume everyone's out to get me. I think that I have to prove myself. If I meet someone, I'm on the back foot trying to, you know, I assume that they think negatively about me because of the show. So I'm constantly just like ready to arc up and, and, and fight them, um, which I never had to be before. You know, I didn't have to go in there assuming that they thought I was an asshole. So it's funny, you know, I meet people and I'm out and about and I have a few drinks and if they go, oh, so you're on Big Brother and I'm ready to go. Like I'm ready to fight them. I'm like, yes, so what? And? Um, and I never was like that before. And that makes me sad. Coming up on the show, Tally talks about how she actually views her job as an influencer and whether she gets annoyed too about the nature of her own work. But first, here's a word from our sponsors. What made you sign up for the show in the first place? Because how old were you at the time? 25. So what did you hear about it? What did you know about it? And why did you want to do it? I was a huge fan of the show. Um, huge fan. And I've never denied that. I've never, you know, pretended like, oh, I didn't even know what it was about. I just thought it I'd was the up. best show. It was. It was amazing. I can guarantee if it was on and I was probably back, like a bit older back when you were, yeah. I would have gone on. I would have been maybe 15 or 16 when it was massive. Yeah. I loved it. I yeah. was 100% of I was, like, when I say I was a fan of the show, I'm talking, I don't even know if you guys remember this, but, like, the first couple of seasons that it was on Channel 10, um, they had a DVD, which I bought. They had their own magazine, like a weekly. Really? I didn't yeah, know that. See? They had, like, a weekly little, like, it was very thin, but it was, like, a weekly magazine just of, like, imagine if, like, NW did, like, a maths lift out every, <laughs> that's what it was. It was a Big Brother magazine. Um, they had, I think at one point they even had scratchies with, like, the housemates' faces on them. Like, I was in, all in. I'd stay up late at night watching the live feed on my computer and, like, just watching them sleep. Like, really <laughs> obsessed. So... Huge fan of the show. I remember when the first series finished, hysterically crying and feeling like I was losing 20 of my best friends. Like thinking, oh, but, you know, what are they going to do tomorrow? And I'm not going to be able to keep up with, like, how they're going. And, like, you know, and obviously social media wasn't a thing back in 2000. So whereas now they can sort of follow us after the show finishes. But I was devastated that first season saying goodbye to my, you know, my new best friends. How did you find the experience when you were in the house? I mean, there was obviously a lot going on and a, a massive public reaction to what was going on in the house at mm-hmm. the time. But how immune were you to that? Do you actually understand what's going on? No. So it's it's funny because, um, you know, Drew, who I ended up, you know, hooking up with in the house, we from the, from day one felt like we'd been miscast. Um, everybody else in the house was you know, really funny or really smart or really loud or, and they were all just so naturally, you know, we felt like they were giving a great show and we just didn't feel like we were like that. We thought, fuck, like, you know, why are we, are we loud enough? Do we need to be louder? And so we quickly formed a relationship or a friendship based off that, you know, we'd sit in the corner and kind of be like, man, these guys are a lot like, fuck, like, you know, Tim's really annoying and loud and so and so is like, and we kind of felt like, you know, the, we felt pressure to like put on a better show, but we didn't feel very interesting. And so we'd sit in the corner and we'd have these chats, just the two of us. And we honestly thought that we probably weren't making very good TV. And, you know, you'd, yeah, I know, idiots. Um, so you'd see, you know, and there were a few cameras, most of the cameras were hidden, but you'd see quite a few of them. They were out either on big poles or on the, you know, the roof that you could see. And quite often or not, if the two of us were in a corner talking and the other 12 were together in a group, you just kind of assume that the camera's not on you. You think, oh, well, they're having a funny conversation over there. There's more of them over there. 
we're probably not even being filmed right now, mm-hmm. which is so dumb, like so dumb. But that's kind of what your brain tells you when you're in there, you know, when you see three cameras and they're all facing the group, you just think, oh, well, no one's filming us right now. Um, the, the first time that I got a taste of maybe the storm that was brewing outside the house was one of the first times I was up for nomination and we do the live crosses and we're told prior, Hey guys, you know, Sonia's coming on in 10. We're actually told if you need to swear, get it out of your system now. And we just sit there being like, fuck. And like, we just start using all the worst way words we could think of so that we wouldn't accidentally say it when we went live. And, and whoever's up for a nomination, you know, she goes, Oh, you know, and you know, Michelle, how are you feeling tonight? And, and then, anyway, she just gets to me and she says, Tully. And then I hear this boo oh. from the audience. And I was like, oh, my God. Well, it, it was so jarring. It was such a shock and it's such a surprise. And and I remember trying to, like, collect myself to answer Sonia's question. But when the – I didn't go that night, by the way. Um, but when – Too much good TV going on. <laughs> right. They knew the goal they right? had. But, but when, you know, it was all said and done, it was all over, I remember sort of sitting there just staring at the floor being like, what the fuck's going on out there? And, like, obviously I, I had an inkling mm. as to why I was being booed, but it was the first time that I kind of was like, oh, shit, this is bigger than I think it is. It's so weird, but I still remember when you came out of the house and you sat down and it was Sonia hosting it at the yeah. time, wasn't it? Sonia said you've been trending worldwide on yeah. Twitter. I still remember your reaction to that because yeah. you were everywhere, like not even just Australia. This was almost a worldwide. And I think because of my um, the job, you know, sort of my, my career before Big Brother was I was a social media strategist working in advertising. So I knew what trending worldwide on Twitter meant and I was like, holy motherfucking shit. I was like, whoa. I was like, I'm in... I'm in trouble because I, I knew I knew I wasn't trending for a good reason. I wasn't trending because, you know, like I, I was super hot or was, you know, really funny or, you know, I knew that I was trending for a negative reason. They didn't paint it in that light on the night, bless them. But I was, as I was watching, you know, they had this, this graphic with these numbers scrolling up and, and I was just like, oh, my God, what am I in for here? So what were those first few days like? How – is it a complete blur? Do you remember parts of them? No, I remember all of it. So I – the first stop is always, no matter what happens, as a housemate, the first stop for you after you're evicted, you don't see your loved ones, yet the first stop is the show psychologist. Um, and so you're shuffled off stage, you know, you have a quick chat to the producer, you get your mic ripped off you and then you take in directly to producer, uh, sorry, the psychologist. And so I sat in the chair and he was pretty blunt. He was like, you know, I'm going to give it to you straight. Um, he's like, there's a lot of love for you. There's a lot of love for you out there. He's like, there's a lot of hate as well. And I said, where's Talia? Who was my partner at the time. I said, where's, where's Talia? Where's Talia? I was like, Talia's not here. Talia's left you. And I was like, okay yep okay right and yeah he was basically like look you know there's been a a lot of backlash there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of press there's a lot of angry comments um there's a facebook page with sixty thousand followers with they're giving you death threats um he's like there's been a lot of media attention around this how did you feel panicked i felt an instant set of panic i thought I mean... Did you think you had ruined your life? I didn't think I'd ruined my life. I think still at that point, um, my main concern wasn't, and this sounds like so, like, martyr, but, like, my main concern wasn't myself. It was Talia. Um, I was kind of ready 
to tackle all of that, I was concerned about Talia. Um, I thought, fuck, if there's a Facebook group with 60,000 people that hate me, how much does Talia hate me? You know, like that was my main concern. And then I kind of, after he kind of was rattling off, you know, stats and facts and I kind of, I think it maybe even came to a bit and I was like, can I see my family and my friends? Like who's here for me? Can I see someone? And he's like, oh, you know, not quite yet, not quite yet. And I'm like, no, I want to see them now. Like I want to see if my dad here, like I want to see them. I need to see them. Um, And I think he kind of realized that he probably looked like I wasn't going to stay put. And then I'll never forget it. He gave me two options. He said, look, I can give you a Valium or you can drink tonight. He's like, if you're going to go go back to your hotel and drink tonight, I can't give you a calm, calmative, but I have if you need it. And I said, you're going to give me both. I go, you're going to give me the Valium and I'm going to drink tonight. So <laughs> were your family there? Yeah, which was another bad sign because dad had always said, look, you you want to do the show, you do the show. That's fine. I'll support no matter, you, you no matter what you want to do, but do not involve me. And that wasn't because he was ashamed or embarrassed. It was because you know, he's had a rough life and he's got severe social anxiety now and it was just all too much and he didn't want to be interviewed and he didn't want to have to fly up to the Gold Coast every time I was up for eviction, which was a lot, <laughs> may I add. Um, and that was totally fair enough. And so when you, before you go into the house, you have a list of loved ones and they have to go in order of priority and I think you have to give them 10 names. Um, and so obviously my first loved one was my girlfriend at the time. So when she was quickly scrapped from the list, uh, rightly so, um, they then worked down the list. So then, bless her, my best friend Katie Piper was next. And Katie had a full-time job um, and was suddenly thrusted into the limelight because Talia refused to do anything. So the fact that my dad was there for my eviction was a bad sign. They'd flown him up there because they knew that, you know, (laughs) things are pretty bad and I'd need my dad. So it was my dad and it was my two best friends, Katie and Sophia. How conscious were you then or in the weeks and months after that show that you needed or wanted the public to like you again? Did you care or did you feel like you needed to earn back favour and love? No, no, I didn't. Um, I knew they didn't like – well, this is the thing. There were there were these people that did love me. There were these people that either saw me f- – for being human and my faults and respected it and was like, you know what, you're human, whatever, you made a mistake. Then there were the people that loved the romance of Drew and I, hashtag Drolly, big fans of a showmance, and there were a lot of them. Um, so there was love still. You know, I had the most number of followers of anyone that had, you know, there was a lot of love for me. Um, but, yeah, the hate was obviously louder. I didn't – I wasn't trying to win anyone back. My priority was always to own my shit. I just wanted to come out, you know, bless them. The producers and, and Channel 9 tried to – well, offered protection in different forms. So usually you stay the night in the hotel and then you go home the next day and then you're flown back up that following weekend to do your meet and greet at Dreamworld. That didn't happen for me. I was kept in the hotel, um, basically on suicide watch. I didn't know this at the time. But they wanted to keep me on the Gold Coast under under a watchful eye because they were concerned that the public backlash was so bad that I might do something silly. So they also kept my best friend with me. So usually you fly back the next day. They kept me and one of my best friends in a hotel room that week. Did you feel like the support was there from the network, from the producers? I know that there's a lot of controversy and a lot of discussions around the responsibility of producers and, and television networks. How did you feel they responded to that entire saga? Hmm... 
Look, this is something that I have thought a lot about. I've written a blog about. I'm also very, very conscious of biting the hand that feeds me. Um, You know, as someone who does want to work in the media industry, um, I'm conscious of what I say uh, publicly. You're always offered the show's uh, psychologist. That's always in hand for you. My concern and, and, and my feelings were that that psychologist is still an employee of the show. They're basically, in my opinion, a puppet. You know, you, you go in there and you say, I feel like the show has done this and I feel like this is happening because of the show. And they say, well, um, is it the show though? I don't know. You know, they don't. So I was offered to speak to the show psychologist Absolutely, I was offered that support. In my head, just quickly, I'm imagining the show psychologist as being like John Aiken from Married at First Literally, that's what, that's what it's like. You try and say, hey, you know, I think this show might have ruined my life. And they go, oh, but it wasn't the show though, <laughs> was it? pre-existing yeah, issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was hard to feel like you were being – you just felt like you were talking to another producer. Um, yeah, and, you know, and when I finally did get home – I was being followed by the paparazzi um, and there were a few things that happened where I felt like I had been portrayed by producers and by the show. You know, um, only a very select handful of people knew the day that my ex was moving out of our apartment and yet for some reason they were perhaps there that day. Oh, my God. And so that was the first time I remember messaging our executive producer and I was like, what, who, the, how the why they're perhaps out the front. This is such a traumatic day already and you've got a camp. Like how has this gotten to the – how the fuck do they know? They swear black and blue that they didn't say – but like when you've only told one person and then a pap just happens to be there the hour that their removalist truck is there, you start to question who you can trust, you know. Did you feel huge pressure on the relationship between you and Drew, whose real name is Anthony? It's all very confusing. Did mm. you feel like there was huge pressure that you guys had to stay together after the show? I felt that. I'm not sure whether he felt that. We both, um, you know, it was tough because there were six weeks of me being out here alone when he was still in the house. Um, and as is with society, uh, he never really had to deal with the repercussions of what happened. He was a legend. He was a party legend. I mean, he was this rock star that had like, you know, turned a lesbian and I was this cheating slutty home wrecker. Um, so I had to deal with a lot of the bullshit before he even got out of the house. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I guess I felt pressure to prove that it was all worth it. But that was more, I mean, I felt that pressure internally. I felt like, fuck, this better be worth it. You know, I've just lost, I've lost my best friend, who is my ex-girlfriend. I still get up there talking about it. You know, I've hurt someone that I love so much for someone else that I loved. And I never thought that, you know, up until that moment, had you told me that you could love two people at once, I would have told you that you're full of shit and pick one. But I really did love two people at once. Um, and I'd lost her and I'd hurt her. I'd lost the public's respect and any, you know, respect that, you know, I'd lost respect from my, from my peers, from friends. Um, I, I'd lost so much. I'd lost my dog. I'd lost my house. You know, I was living in a house with no furniture. Tile, it, it was all Talia's furniture. So I remember, you know, for a while there, I was like sitting on milk crates in a house. I'd, I was going and doing media appearances and then coming home to an empty house. So, yeah, I felt pressure to make it work. I was like, I hope this guy's worth it. And then when I, you know, when I moved down to Melbourne to be with him and left, and then I, you know, left my home and my family and my sick mother, 
I felt pressure to make it work for sure. For sure. How long did it actually last? Depends who you speak to. Um, look, officially it wasn't long. Um, and this is something I haven't really spoken about publicly for a couple of reasons. Um, it's controversial. He probably says something different to me. Um, I also, um, out of respect to Talia, um, hate dragging it back up and talking about it all over again. Um, we gave it a crack. We gave it a crack. I did move down here to be with him. In hindsight, we were both pretty fucked up from the show. It was such a weird situation to be in. You know, he, um, we'd go out to nightclubs and we were like, for lack of a better word, celebrities. We were being pulled, you know, from all directions. People wanted photos. Girls were, you know, he had this, he'd gone in this like geeky, pale engineer student and come out this like tanned, long haired, you know, like superstar. And, um, and the girls loved him. And, and that was tough for me. Not so tough for him, apparently, but tough for me. <laughs> I can imagine. So tell us that transition. You went from reality style. Obviously, you built quite a significant social media following out of that show and sort of made this incredible transition into influencer that sort of hasn't really happened with any other reality star. I mean, it's uh, reality stars seem to have like a really quick spike when it comes to social media fame and then it sort of very quickly drops off. What was that transition like? How did you find yourself in that influencer space? Well, I think the, the two, it's a two-pronged attack. The reason I think I'm still, I mean, I guess relevant because we're sitting here talking today, I think it's for two reasons. One, we just so happened to be, to come out of the house the moment that social media was kicking off. Timing was really everything. Before then, um, people didn't really, people were using Instagram um, peer-to-peer. You know, I had think I had, when I went to the house, I was definitely a private account and I think I had like, 300 followers or people that I was following and they were people that I knew personally, co-workers, friends, family, whatever. Um, brands w- weren't on Instagram. Like, you know, McDonald's didn't have an Instagram. Zimmerman didn't have an Instagram. It was just us. We were all just sharing photos of our cats and our dogs and, you know, our breakfast. Um, and so when we came out, the show were like, we had a meeting with the social media guy, Channel 9, and he created a face, official Facebook fan page and he got, you know, made our Instagrams public and we were given sort of all these tools to use. I obviously knew how to use these tools because of what I did previously. But I, um, you know, I remember getting my phone back. It was such a weird experience. Getting my phone back after 10 weeks and turning it on. And I had like, because I was private, I had like a gazillion friend requests on Instagram. And I was like, well, I'll just make it public. I didn't really put too much thought into it. I probably should have. I wish I had. I wish I'd kept that private and started maybe a, a new one, but I didn't. I just opened the floodgates. Didn't even check what I'd posted. Like didn't go back and see, are there nudes there? Was there anything bad or was it Well, there, there was a few, the, uh, there, there was a couple of my house and outside of my house that people end up using to find where I lived. Dum dum. Um, but yeah, I probably should have gone back and checked it first, but I didn't. Um, but yeah, I think that was, you know, I just suddenly, and as I said, you know, when I watched the show as a kid, my thing was, I was sad. I wasn't going to be able to catch up with these guys anymore. And suddenly everyone that loved me on the show could continue to follow me and continue to watch me live my life, which is what Big Brother was. You're watching me live my life. So I think that's, 
kind of why I was popular originally, but it was also just timing. You're right. Timing does have a huge part to play, but also so does you and your personality. When you are sort of carving a role for yourself in the influencer space, do you find that there are misconceptions about that job? For one, that people find maybe influencers are lazy, for lack of a better word. Because there's a lot of discontent for influencers. Like people are angry almost when influencers talk about any kind of job that they have. They almost feel like, no, you just post products every day and that's it. How do you feel about that? Well, it's interesting because obviously I'm um, a new member to the Shameless Facebook community and that place is freaking terrifying. Like <laughs> As I'm, an influencer, you mean? Yeah. Like I'm scared. I'm scared. Like, I'm scared. And I know, you know, I don't know if this is public knowledge, but I'm sure she wouldn't mind me sharing. I know that Laura Henshaw has joined and left and rejoined a few times because they don't hold back in there. And and it's so interesting because these are my people. You know, they, I don't know a lot of them personally, but they feel like females that I would be friends with. I would meet at a bar and think is, you know, really funny or great or brilliant. And then so to see them write stuff about influencer, it's, you know, it's confronting and, and it's it's – it's upsetting in the same breath. I mean, I sometimes also think that influence influences are like, you know, I'm kind of discontent with what I do and, you know, I kind of get it. Like I get it. Some days I do just wake up and take a selfie and get paid a lot of money for it. So it's interesting. It's interesting. On one hand, I'm kind of like defensive. I want to be like, it's harder than it looks. And there's a lot of time and effort that goes into this. And there's a strategy behind it. And then in the other hand, I'm like, yeah, you know, you're right. I mean, (laughs) you get up and you probably go and, you know, you're a doctor and you go save lives every day. And I'm getting up and going and having a free lunch and taking a selfie. It's really interesting that you say that because that self-awareness, I don't think exists as much in this space. It doesn't. And it's funny because I go to events and I'm sitting there at this table you know, of influencers and models and whatever else. And I'm hearing these conversations and I sometimes honestly just want to get up and be like, would you fucking listen to yourself? All of you, like you're complaining about the fact that your free car, you know, isn't the one that you wanted. And you're you're complaining that, you know, this brand sent you a bunch of free clothes, but they're not the ones you, you know, that you would have, I'm just like, listen to us. Like, (laughs) this isn't real life. Like what fucking alternative reality are we living in right now? But I just sit there and I eat my free food and I take my fucking photos (laughs) and I hashtag the right things. Do you know what I mean? Like I, sometimes I feel like I'm trapped in a, like I'm in the Truman show, but I'm the only person that realizes it. Because you've gone through this a couple of times, right? Like you've taken breaks from social media. You have been, like you spoke about your mum before, you've been transparent about your actual life and how I much you do hold this kind of resentment towards what you do as well. How do you, that was 2017 that you took your break from social media. Mm-hmm. 2019, what do you see in your future? Well, it's funny. Like I, fuck, I feel so sorry for my manager because every time I have these chats, she's like, if you keep talking about hating this, People are going to stop paying you to do this. And I'm like, she makes a good point. And I'm like, it's a, I'm so grateful. That's, I, I don't want that to be misconstrued. I am so grateful and I am so aware of how lucky I am to do what I do. Like, I'm so lucky and I'm so grateful. And please keep paying me to promote your products. But I just want there to be, you know, I think as an influencer, when you have a platform, you know, um, when you have a platform, you have like a public responsibility. And I think that I just wish that there were more of us that felt that way. You know, I, I don't see why they can't be, yeah, I can go to fun parties and talk about clothes and whatever else, but I really, really wish that more of us used our platform for good instead of evil. I wish we used it to spread awareness about things we were passionate about and causes close to our hearts 
And I wish more of us were transparent and honest and share the good days, the bad days as well as the good days. Um, and that's when I really love, you know, I, I, I fall out of, out of love with it. And then I do something like share a really raw post or talk about my anxiety or talk about something. And then the response to that is what keeps me going because that is always, and it's funny because, you know, brands obviously talk about engagement rate and, and that's great. I totally understand that likes and comments is important, but my engagement is in my DMS and no one can see that. Do you know what I mean? Like if you saw my DMS blow up, after I spoke about anxiety or anything else, that's where it, that's where the real community is. That's where the love is. That's where the, you know, the pain is. That's where the, the rawness is. That's what I love about it. And no one sees that. So yeah, people, I don't have as many followers as, as some other influencers, but if you could see the community that's in my DMS and these young females that you know, are brilliant and smart and that get up every morning, even though they are crippled with anxiety. Like that's what keeps me posting and that's what keeps me on Instagram. What do you want to be known for? Like if people look back in a couple of years and and look at this time of your life after Big Brother, what do you want people to know you for? I mean, I think unknowingly me being more open about my anxiety, that seems to be what resonates most with my followers. Um, I've struggled with anxiety my whole life since I was very, very little. Um, you know, we used to call me a worry wart, but now obviously we all know what anxiety is. And it's when I talk about that, that I get, I think the biggest reaction. And I feel like I can really connect to people that follow me. What do I want to be known for? I guess just being honest and being raw and, and reminding people that, you know, Social media isn't real life. It's a highlights reel. It's a heavily curated version of my life. And I just want people to remember that and to remember that, you know, that every, no matter how you're hand, you know, every, you're, you are enough. Like you are totally enough and, and just be yourself. Like I, you know, you guys also asked me one of the questions you said that you sometimes ask is about inspirational women. And I wanted to, to really think about that because immediately the people that came to my mind were people that I know. And I don't want it to sound like I am, you know, we've all made a pact to like, you know, you go on the podcast, you talk about me, I'll talk about you on your podcast. <laughs> but I honestly, when you, when you guys sent that email yesterday morning, the first people that came to my head were people that I know and pe- some people that you've already interviewed, um, you know, people that work there, women that work their fucking asses off, like Genevieve Day, who's my manager, also now your manager, um, who owns Day Management, Michelle Battersbury, who is just a absolute gun and and just I have so much respect for her and how hard she works with Bumble and what Bumble do for women um Steph and Laura obviously who have just created this huge empire um but there's some Halsey I really love Halsey um who's the singer obviously um and I'm sure you guys are across the poems that she's done both of the yeah that shit like just blows my mind her um an inconvenient inconvenient woman is that what she at the glamour awards i have been called an inconvenient woman my entire fucking life and that speech just like really hits home to me and she's just like you know what don't apologize for who you are don't apologize for being too much too loud too passionate and i guess you know in terms of come back to your question of what you're like i don't i want to be remembered for something you know being inconvenient tully thank you so oh, much for coming for on the show i mean you when you say you want to be known for being raw and being honest, I mean, I, I, this is the best example of it. I mean, we've just sat here for 40 minutes and you've sort of spared no detail. Um, and 
I think you are doing wonderful things by doing those kinds of things, like being so open, and we have loved having you. Thank you so much. Thanks for the chat. Thank you so much for listening to this very special In Conversation episode of Shameless with Tully Smythe. You can find Tully on Instagram at Tully Smythe and us at Shameless Podcast. And for those of you coming to our live show tonight presented by Shopback, we hope you enjoy this episode because we've got quite the surprise coming for you tonight. See you then. Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.